Hello, and welcome to Money Matters. My name is Dave Emery. I work for the Marshall Financial Group in Doylestown, PA. And my co-host today is John Mason. He's with Seeking Alpha. So before we start the show here, I need to read my, our disclosure agreement. The Marshall Financial Group is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. For additional information about Marshall, please request our disclosure brochure as set forth on Form ADV using our website, www.marshallfinancial.com, or refer to the Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website, which is www.advisorinfo.sec.gov. Any information on today's show is not intended for personal advice. So I'd like to welcome to the show, John Mason. John, how are you? Just fine, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing real well. So uh, we were chatting a little bit earlier. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the building debt in the United States. Uh, what are some of your thoughts about that? Well, uh, the uh, we're, we're just experiencing a buildup of debt uh, almost everywhere. Uh, we can start with the federal government if you'd like. Uh, the uh, uh, I don't know if you've seen the figures, but uh, uh, this coming year, uh, the uh, national debt is supposed to be a hundred percent of uh, gross domestic product. Uh, it hasn't been like that since back in World War II. Uh, the projections for the future are for accelerating uh, uh, government debt and uh, this is because of uh, a lot of the expenditure that has uh, had to be made during the uh, pandemic crisis here, but also that uh, go moving into the future with a uh, very slow economic growth. I mean, most uh, forecasts for economic growth are, are uh, below 2% right now for the next uh, couple of years. So slow economic growth uh, will keep down revenues from uh, coming into the government, which has mean that the deficit's going to increase. And I presume that there will be greater expenditures uh, connected with uh, trying to uh, limit the effect of the recession and getting the economy going again. So uh, we've got there a lot of debt that's going to be issued over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, no, I, I've definitely heard from some of our clients that are concerned about, about the government spending and, um, and what impact it's going to have uh, on, you know, basically on the economy and the, you know, more in particular, their, their lives moving forward. I mean, That's I, right. I deal, deal with a lot of people that are planning for retirement. And um, you know, the question becomes, you know, uh, can, can the U.S. grow out of this? I mean, you know, what's I, I know it's tough to analyze right here and now because we don't know what's what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, well, can you grow yourself out of it? Maybe that's a good place to start. <laughs> Some people are calling this the uh, age of radical uncertainty, that mm -hmm. uh, we don't only not know what the probabilities, potential probabilities of outcomes might be, we don't know what all the possible outcomes might be. So uh, uh, we go back and uh, I think the, re the phrase was used, unknown unknowns. We have a bunch of them right now. Right. And uh, as a consequence, uh, how to treat all the things that we're going to be going through uh, becomes a real problem. Yeah. So um, you mentioned Fed policy. You want to talk a little little bit about about that and and uh, where you think that may end up going here in you know next year or so? Sure. 
Sure. Well, let, let me add just a, a, a tad more uh, sure. to get into the Fed uh, problems here. I mean, one of the things that uh, we have found uh, with the pandemic is that uh, the savings rate uh, in the United States has gone down tremendously. Uh, as you can imagine, I mean, people's incomes are, are dropping off. Uh, their expenditures are, are staying around where they were. So as a consequence, savings is going down. Right. Um, yesterday, uh, the uh, Bureau of Economic Affairs uh, uh, released information that the trade deficit has dropped to a 14-year low. It's, uh, um, uh, it is really, really tanked uh, during this particular time. And one of the things that that means uh, is that we're going to have to go more and more overseas mm. in order mm. to get funds to finance all this debt that is being issued. So uh, that raises dollar issues. Right. What's going to happen with the What's going to happen with the dollar? You know, the, the, the value of the dollar. Is going yeah. Down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, since March, the value of the dollar has dropped nine percent. Hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people uh, now, a growing number, that are feeling that uh, with this um, uh, increase. Well, with the slow economic growth and the slowdown in savings and uh, that kind of thing, that um, uh, that the dollar is may take an even bigger jump downwards, and the Fed is very limited now in the possibility right. of combating that. Uh, right. Past history is that the Fed has, uh, in the last couple of years, the Fed has done a good job in terms of being concerned about with international flows of funds and so has consequently done things that have, have helped uh, keep the dollar uh, at a good value. Uh, now the Fed had just uh, revised its policy a month or so ago and the policy is that they are going to allow higher rates of inflation for a while if we ever get them Right. That's another story itself. Right. But uh, uh, in order to try and get that uh, higher rate of inflation, they're going to be willing to keep interest rates. Now, the federal the federal funds rate, the, the target rate that the Fed works off of is nine basis points. I mean, whoa, it's just a little above zero. Okay. Right. The Fed is now saying for the next couple of years, in order to try and get the inflation rate going back up, that they are going to keep the their interest rate down and not raise it, possibly for two, some I've heard say three years, mm -hmm. that they will keep the rate down. Well, that allows them no room in order to try and maintain the value of the dollar. So, you know, we've got a real burgeoning series of events here that is going to put, I think, more and more pressure onto policymakers, which mm -hmm. again, raises the uncertainty in terms of how these things are going to work out. Wow. Yeah. Stay tuned. Very interesting. <laughs> it's not uh, the nicest picture in the world. That's right. So, uh, well, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, willing to take a, a question from the audience? Sure. Okay.
So Tim Walton of Ardmore wrote in, his question is, do you think the banks, that bank stock prices will be moving up or down in the next year? Well, I'm, I'm very bearish on, on bank stocks. Uh, the, uh, you've got a couple things going on here. I mean, the environment that I just uh, <clears throat> uh, drew, uh, the picture I just drew of the environment is not a very, not a very good one. It's right. not very positive for the banks. And uh, so that is one thing that has to be dealt with. But secondly, you also have uh, the fantastic change in technology that's going on in terms mm -hmm. of uh, becoming more <laughs> information oriented. Right. And uh, this is going to be a really, really tough time for the banks. Uh, the banks have historically lagged way behind technology in terms of advancing their uh, their ability to, to transfer money. Right. Now, this is rushing on them like crazy. Right. And my projection for the next five years for the banking industry is you ain't seen anything like you're going to see in the next five years in terms of the changes that are going to take place in this banking system. And one of the places that you see that already is that banks are starting to close branches, hmm. closing branches left and right, basically because of the pandemic. But secondly, people are changing how they're doing business. Right. I mean, it's amazing to talk with, with people that uh, are, let's say, a little more mature, that never used uh, uh, used electronic payments and things right. like that before. Uh, I remember, you know, I remember back in the '60s when we had a financial uh, situation, and and people were saying, "Oh, there's not going to be any money because we're going to, mm -hmm. we've got all these automatic teller machines and so forth." Well, <laughs> this this is this is a lot more than that, right. and as a consequence, I think that this whole environment is going to make it better and better for the large banks to survive mm -hmm. and because they can also introduce the technology in ways that the smaller banks can't even touch makes sense and secondly uh that that's where the business is going to go the business is going to go to the bigger banks so i think you're going to see a big shrinkage over the next five years in the banking system in terms of the number of independent banks that exist. That is not a real good environment in mm. terms of bank stocks. So right. the long way around, that's where I come out in terms of bank stocks. Big ones, keep the watch on the, the big four, keep a watch mm -hmm. on the top 25. But uh, uh, below that, I think you're going to find a real... Uh, uh, really a, a dim diminishing number. So it sounds like it's uh, the bigger are going to get bigger and the, the smaller guys are going to maybe get you know, bought up by the bigger guys or, or go out exactly. of business. Exactly. So. Well, good insight. I really appreciate that. So uh, uh, if, if you're interested in sending, sending your questions in, this is where to send it in. You can have your questions answered on Money Matters. Please go to our website, money-matterstv.com, 
on our homepage, click on the banner on the right that says, Send Us Your Questions. While you're on our website, you can find information about our hosts and guests, as well as show notes and links about this show and past shows. Money Matters is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can listen to Money Matters while you're on the go. That website address, again, is money, M-O-N-E-Y, dash matters, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, tv.com. I'd like to now introduce our guest today, Jordan Fisher. She's with Expand Law Group. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, about you and your company. Yeah, so Xpan Law Group is a boutique international and domestic uh, data privacy and cybersecurity law firm. Um, so we deal with all varieties of technology, data regulation, laws, contracts, etc. Um, additionally, I am a professor of law at uh, Drexel's Klein School of Law. So I get to do both the academic side, but then also get to see that practical world and sort of what's going on in the real world. Wow. So, uh, yeah, certainly today, cyber uh, security is, is a big thing. What are some of the um, uh, privacy and uh, changes that you're seeing over the next couple of years with that? Uh, yeah, and so it's actually really interesting listening to uh, John talk about the impact of technology on the banking industry because we see the impact of technology, privacy, and security across all industries. And we have seen a rapid change in the last six months as more and more businesses have focused on remote work environments. Employees are really having to rely on technology to provide their services, their operations, et cetera. And we're having to reinvent the way a lot of businesses operate, frankly. And um, amongst all of this, we are seeing this drastic change in the legal environment. So we've had privacy regulations, the European Union being the first to push those out uh, about two years ago in 2018. And then California um, sort of changing the US domestic landscape around privacy with the California Consumer Privacy Act that went into effect earlier this year. And so, we're sort of seeing the way that businesses operate drastically evolve and change in this acute time period, while at the same time, a very unsettled legal space, which is creating ultimately a lot of lack of transparency and uncertainty for the individuals whose data is being collected and who are really using that technology. Can wow. I jump in and ask a question on that? Because it's very interesting to me is how do you perceive the ability of these people to make these adjustments that they're being faced with right now. I mean, you're seeing it from, from your side, but in terms of the, the business person themselves or the individual private in, the private individual, are we going to be able to do it? Yeah. I mean, I think we have seen the ability of people to be adaptable um, really thrive in the last couple of months. Um, for some industries, and you can name them, big tech, um, some other innovative industries, the concept of popping open your laptop on day one of the pandemic and working from home was a much easier conversation than in some heavily regulated industries like banking, mm -hmm. finance, et cetera, where a lot of employees worked in an office, there was more traditional settings, there were services that required people to physically come in to authenticate who they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think that authentication would be an easy thing online, but 
it can be masked. And we have seen that be um, manipulated in the past six months. And so that coming in and opening a bank account and doing that in person, that service needed to be rethought and sort of evolve. And I think that the industries that were a little further ahead or were adopting new technologies or themselves innovating technologies were much quicker to embrace that environment and their employees were much quicker to embrace that environment. Now, that being said, I think we have seen drastic innovation in the last couple of months in the education field, in financial field, um, that have really allowed people to continue on with their day-to-day -day lives in ways that are still gonna let them have those services and, and you know engage in society. Um, but I think all of us are having web conferencing fatigue. All of us are having laptop fatigue. Um, you know, we, we thought in 2019 we were a very digital society, and I think we realized how far we had not come in 2020 mm -hmm. when we were all on computers all the time. <laughs> so, so what do you see as the, as the top, you know, some of the top individual threats? And the reason uh, one of the thoughts that's going through my mind, I have some um, clients that are elderly, and one I'm thinking of in particular uh, he just got a phone call um, and basically it sounded like his grandson needed, you know, was, was had an accident. He was, he had been drinking and he needs, uh, you know, needs a bunch of money, purely a, you know, a, you know, kind of a, a cyber threat, if you will, privacy threat at least. Yeah. And we've seen, unfortunately, those scams, um, you know, mask themselves in a lot of different ways. Phone calls, text messages have been seen a huge increase right now, especially around the election time period, right. et cetera. They include links. Hey, just click on this link. You can send me donations. You can pay for your, your grandson's injuries, et cetera. Um, and so the number one thing that we always advise individuals is to think before you click, right? Do not be a happy clicker. Never click on a link before your coffee because you're at the least, right. <laughs> your least strong mental capabilities. Um, and so you really want to think and use your own contact methods with that person, with that organization, go online, look at their website before you engage with them to ensure that they are in fact who they say they are. If your grandson is contacting you, then it should be from a number or an email or a text message that you recognize. If your right. bank is contacting you, do not call them back in the email. Do not call them back in the text message or not use the text messages pick up your card, pick up your last bank statement and call them back with the number that you have for them. That mm -hmm. is going to be the number one way to protect yourself. And this is happening across the board, no matter age, no matter location, et cetera. The, the attackers understand that we are inundated with information. We are tired. We are really focused on the pandemic, which means that we do not have the mental capabilities to necessarily pick up on everything else that's going on. And they are using that to their advantage. And they're very smart. They use social engineering. They can go on your Facebook account. They can figure out the name of your grandson because you posted on his post or you put his photo up. And then they're going to use that information. So mm -hmm. it really is thinking through and say, how did this person contact me? Is that normal? Is that the normal course of business? Because if it's not, then you should be thinking twice about it. Is there any recourse to go after these people? I mean... So, I mean, it's tough. I mean, the one, for instance, I mean, there was a phone call and the phone call, you know, it's gone type of thing. Yeah. And so the, the biggest challenge, there's a couple of big challenges in this space of going after perpetrators. So the first one is, are they contacting you from the United States or from another country? And if it's from another country, do we have an agreement with them um, at the governmental level that they're going to help us go after that person? 
The second challenge is that often if you don't react and contact someone within the first few hours, the trail becomes very cold and it's very hard to figure out who is actually perpetrating this. And that is because they will ping you from so many different geographic locations and make it very challenging to trace that back. And often people don't think when you get a text message like that, I should probably contact my local law enforcement who have the tools to do this. Um, So the quicker you can contact somebody to let them know that this is happening, the better likelihood that you're gonna be able to sort of go after them. but the first thing, I mean, if you get a call, and this is what, and I've had this happen to me throughout throughout the last few months, you know, I have had things come in that make it look like it's my bank or a bank that I've used private previously. And what I'll do is I'll contact that bank and I'll say, listen, I'm getting information that looks like it's from you, but it's not in fact you. And then the bank can proactively try to protect its, you know, its customers, especially its more vulnerable customers to say, if we get a weird transaction, we're going to triple check, we're going to use that double authentication method, we're going to call them because they normally don't come online, they're usually coming into the bank in person. Um, So be a proactive, you know, we talk a lot in cyber and privacy that we're only as strong in a society as our weakest link. And Mm -hmm. we're all in this together. And so you're going to help that person that's going to get that email tomorrow, if you call the bank today and say, I'm getting these spoofing emails. What can you do about it? Protect us as your customers. Makes sense. You mentioned the government, uh, Jordan. Is the, is the government doing all that it can uh, to uh, assist you and assist the private sector in terms of uh, meeting this challenge? And like, uh, what about the U.S. federal privacy law? Is that, uh, is that something that uh, we're going to see uh, soon? Yeah, so the magic eight ball question right now is, are we going to get a federal privacy law? Um, And just to to clarify, we do have some federal privacy laws in certain areas. So we have the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which deals with notices and consents around banking and using of your information. We have the HIPAA Act, which deals with healthcare information and sort of the treatment. So we do have some federal privacy laws. Um, There are a number of laws that have been proposed in 2019 and then specifically related to COVID-19 and sort of privacy in that context, um, contact tracing, et cetera. None of those have passed. So we don't have a comprehensive federal privacy law. We don't envision having one in the short term, especially in an election year. Um, You know, there's a lot of challenges to bringing the right stakeholders to the table to have that conversation. There's big tech, but then there's also regulated industries. I mean, we as a society run on data. And so you could almost point to every industry being impacted by a federal privacy law. And additionally, you have states that have enacted their own privacy laws, California being probably one of the most well-known, and they're not looking to have those rights be limited or diminished. They're looking to have that be addressed. So the the preemption aspect is also another challenge that we're gonna see be addressed. Now, that being said, on the law enforcement side, the federal government is definitely involved and has some amazing teams and tools to help you as an individual or as businesses combat these cyber threats. The FBI has a cyber intelligence unit. Um, They are a great resource for businesses. Even just calling them to understand the threats that are being seen across the country can be very valuable. I have a lot of clients in the in various sectors and they are the front line to a lot of these cyber attacks but the fbi actually has that global view and can talk to you about what they're seeing and that can be very very valuable to protect your system and the faster you can get that information to these federal 
um, entities, the FBI being, I think, one of the primary ones in the United States, the more quickly they're able to help you and help the industry. You know, a lot of times and banking being one of the ones that we see that's highly vulnerable um, and a, a sort of honeypot, if you would, for data. Um, you know, if your bank's getting hit, the bank next door or the bank in the next state is probably also being hit as well. And so the faster you can get that information to the FBI, the FBI is going to have resources to sort of approach this globally. And they're also going to have the authority to go after people and have those agreements abroad that you as a private entity might not have. So there definitely are resources out there. Um, but you need to be willing to have a conversation and working with external partners who can help facilitate those relationships. So as a, uh, a user of technology and the internet, are there any other things that, that people should, consi should consider uh, to protect themselves? Yeah, uh, I mean, as and as myself as a user of technology, although I often, people always <laughs> say, what's your favorite piece of technology? And I say, none of it, because I'm scared of it all. Um, but as myself, a user of technology, I think the, the, the easiest thing you can do to protect yourself, and this is gonna sound very baseline, but so often attacks happen with very simple, ways to get in is better passwords and two-factor authentication. And I'll explain both of those. It is so easy to crack most passwords that people use. The password 1234 is a very commonly used password. It's also a very easily guessed one. Right. Um, so if you are sitting right here right now and your password is password 1234, please take a, take a step back and go change your password. So using more um, complicated passwords, using past phrases. So you could say, I love Philadelphia. You know, that's gonna be a stronger password than password one, two, three, four. So making sure that you have a strong password is gonna be so key and not reusing those passwords. That is actually a common way we see businesses get impacted by cyber infiltrations. It's because their employees use the same password on their Facebook account as they do for their admin account right. at work. And then it's, it's, it's somehow it, it, it's reached in a social media context and then all of a sudden they're able to get into your business. So that's a very common thing. Do not reuse your password. And the second thing is two-factor authentication. So often banks require you to, to use this. A lot of other industries are starting to do that, but it's where you get a code texted to your cell phone and you sort of log in, you put your password in, a code is texted to your cell phone. That's one way to do this. You can also have an application that sort of pops up on your phone and says, hey, are you trying to log into your account in mm -hmm. Philadelphia? Um, that is gonna be so valuable because it's really gonna prevent a lot of attacks that could happen to your account and it's gonna really protect you as an individual. You should definitely have two-factor authentication on any sensitive accounts that you have. So your banking accounts, your investment accounts, um, your healthcare accounts, anything that's, that's gonna have sensitive information that's really gonna be a detriment to you, you should have that two-factor authentication on. Um, and that those are the two key things and they sound really simple but they really can help everybody drastically increase their cybersecurity protections. That's great advice. So, um, well, how did you get into this, uh, Jordan? And and what what kind of experience have you found in terms of having your own group and and, and trying to to grow it? So, you know, we're we're a women-owned law firm working in tech and law. And we like to call ourselves a little bit of a unicorn because you know historically this has been a very male-dominated field. Um, you know, I love to be a woman who's providing a voice in this space. Um, we have been an entirely virtual law firm. And so ironically, I think we were more well prepared for 2020 than we even knew when we opened our law firm back in 2017. Um, 
but I love connecting with people. I think this is an area that is just going to drastically keep impacting our day-to-day lives. And if I can teach one person and protect one person, I think that I have done an incredible job for both that person and society. Um, you know, and we need to be starting young. We need to be, we work a lot with local Girl Scout troops, elementary schools, because cyber hygiene is just like teaching your kids to look left and right when they cross the road. You need to start learning these practices young. And so I really am so thankful that XPAN has provided this platform to engage with the community and in some way help to raise that community knowledge and be part of the conversation, which I think is so important right now, if not more than ever. So. Great. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm really, really uh, interested in, in what you're doing. Yeah. That's thanks wonderful. so much for having me. I appreciate well, it. Jordan, a lot of great information. Really appreciate uh, the insight. And John, uh, we've been great work with you today. I'm um, coming to the close of the show here. So um, uh, just uh, wanted to sum it up with uh, our next week's guest. He's, he's the CEO. His name is Bruce Bletchman of Entrepreneurial Capital Corp. So uh, please tune in for, for that, that, that show. Remember, your money matters.